Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. One of the pleasures of doing this, uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network, Tyler, is that we have had a chance to work with some incredible coastal professionals over the years that we've done this. I guess about four years now, Tyler. That's right. And uh, one of our longtime and original supporters and show hosts is going to be joining us today on the American Shoreline Podcast to talk about uh, climate change, carbon capture, and implications for fisheries, and how that issue might be addressed up in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Tyler, we're going to be talking to our very, very good friend, Brad Warren. You know, Peter, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to know Brad over the years. He has been a repeat guest on this show. Uh, He has co-hosted the Changing Waters podcast, a podcast that focuses on the state of uh, the fisheries around the American shoreline and also around the world, but takes a real broad view of it and is in looking at the broader picture of what could impact fisheries. It's not just overfishing, ladies and gentlemen. There's a lot at play. And Brad is a big thinker, someone that uh, is really leading the way. I think he's on the knife's edge of thinking about how fisheries are going to change into the future with climate change. Peter, I'm really looking forward to this discussion today. I am as well. Brad Warren is the president, uh, former executive director, and I guess maybe still the executive director of the National Fisheries Conservation Center up in Seattle, Washington. He's also the director of Global Ocean Health. Uh, as you said, uh, host of the Changing Waters podcast with our our, our dear friend who's, who passed away, Thane Tinson, um, but uh, a, a real expert and a uh, It's a treat, Tyler. We're going to get to kind of wrap up the year with one of the great thinkers on the American Troy. So I'm really looking forward to uh, talking to Brad today. Me too. And and what we're going to be talking about, in addition to this kind of broad scale stuff, is we're going to be talking specifically about the place of tribal leadership uh, as we go forward. And I'll tell you, Peter, this this is a subject that we've covered a little bit, but I want to learn so much more. I know we're going to cover some great ground today. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest Questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, welcome back to the American Shoreline podcast, Brad. Always a pleasure to uh, spend, spend time with you. 
Thank you. What a wonderful introduction. I, I hope I live up to it. No doubt about it. Uh, Brad, for our listeners around the country and uh, around the world even, uh, it would be great to start off, if you would, uh, with a little better uh, background on the National Fisheries Conservation Center and Global Ocean Health, and what drove you personally to uh, take the role that you have in fisheries uh, management? Sure. Yeah. Just for simplicity, uh, Global Ocean Health is now a DBA of uh, National Fisheries Conservation Center. We just uh, arranged that this year. It's um, uh, so they're synonymous. In effect, it's our main program. Uh, has been now since the you know middle of the two thousands, and uh, it, 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 it 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 all of this work grew out of my growing up in one of the thousands of families that lost not just their food and the fish they liked to catch, but for, for my grandparents, really the meaning of their life. This was the, the central pillar. It might as well have been their church, uh, was, was fishing and packing and feeding the neighbors and their friends. And, and when the salmon that they loved were wiped out, whole species were wiped out by dam building on the Columbia River starting in the 30s in a big wave of uh, New Deal building and then continuing through mid-century. I grew up watching my grandparents in a state of um, contained fury and grief. They could barely speak. Uh, it was an unspeakable ruin of nature and people that they witnessed and, and were, were victims of. Uh, they, they, would, they would get a few sentences out when I asked them about it, a few sentences, and then they would sort of fall into this stewing silence. And for me, that launched me. I, I grew up knowing uh, I could spin words, I could uh, do research, I could get people thinking about these things. I decided I'm going to become a writer and I'm going to change the world. We're going to take this on. And of course, that, that started out in journalism and I began writing about wh who's working on, on protecting fish habitat and looking after the world. If you look after the places that make fish, that make dinner for worldwide, it's billions of people, um, uh, the rivers and the, and the ocean, if you look after these places, you're looking after an awful lot of what matters in this world. It's not just food, right? It's livelihood, it's identity, it's pride, it's lots of things. And uh, so we launched and it, it began with me as a young writer, reporter, looking around who's doing the best work here. And that turned out really quickly in the Northwest to be tribes. Um, tribes in 1980, when I was just getting started, they won a, a, a really signal federal court ruling uh, known as Bolt Phase Two. They'd already won their uh, recognition of their treaty rights to, to, to have some of the fish. And then they won uh, uh, this major ruling that said, and by the way, you can't just wipe out the fish and say that you didn't ban them from fishing. Uh, if you wipe out the fish, you've stripped them of their livelihood. You've reduced their right to, the judge said, simply a right to dip their net in the water and bring it up empty. Uh, that's no right at all. And uh, they wound up with this very broad right to protect habitat. Um, and that, uh, I at the time I was writing for environmental publications and fishing industry trade publications where I wound up running some of those. And, and they, um, uh, the, the fishing industry was mostly you know, guys I knew on the waterfront who were fighting the tribes, trying to defend themselves from what they saw as an attack on their livelihood as the tribes were asserting their rights. 
And it, it turned out with that ruling that they, the tribes laid the foundation for becoming the allies you've got to have to have a future. Uh, it, it, it set the table for where we are now, 40 years later, where the industry works with tribes and other indigenous communities that have really considerable legal rights. They're different. They're not, they're not individual rights. They're tribal rights rooted in treaty law and other bodies of law that distinguish the tribes from other people playing in the space and in some ways make them, along with elements of their culture, uniquely effective as advocates and as uh, actors in this space of looking after these habitats, restoring them when they're damaged. Uh, I mean, they, they have, I think I can call it indelible patience uh, for, for looking after the landscape they live in and love and, and the fish that it creates and the other things it creates, the resources they depend on. Um, that indelible burning patience, uh, that's a borrow from um, the uh, magnificent Chilean poet Neruda um, uh, it, it, in Neruda's mind, that's the patience you need to build a better world. And I've been watching the tribes do this now since I was 20. Um, All right. I gotta, I gotta jump in and ask you a question. Cause this is, this is what I've got to think about is, you know, Peter, and I, I would think Peter, I think you probably would agree with this, that, uh, it seems like nowadays I would say we're in the post- uh, climate denial phase uh, uh, that in in the American psyche there is this gr- increasing recognition that perhaps uh, the folks that we genocided uh, across America possessed uh, knowledge and culture of of sustainability perhaps. Uh, living in a greater symbiosis with the landscape that we just simply don't have, and so we're and we're in this crisis. And man, wouldn't it be great to be able to harness some of those, some of that knowledge? Yeah. Uh, you know, indigenous knowledge is like written in now to NOAA plans. And I'm wondering the transition that you've observed. Like, what did your parents and grandparents think of tribal knowledge when you were 20? Did they admire it then? Did they understand what it was then? I don't think really anybody did in, in the non-Indian world. To this day, I'm not sure any of us can. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, 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 our work with tribes started then when I was writing about treaty rights advances that they were making. And over the decades, uh, real deep friendships and mentorships evolved. Um, one of the real leaders in that world was Terry Williams, who... Uh, became just a tremendous guide to me and to many, many other people, hundreds, maybe thousands of people kind of cut their teeth. Much of our team in this in this organization that I'm running uh, was brought together originally by Terry. I pretty much hired from Terry's team. Uh, uh, he uh, he died last, last summer and um, uh, he, by then he was serving on our board and he really... Um, it launched this effort that we're doing called Building Tribal Leadership and Carbon Removal with a vision that came out of his uh, roots as a, 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 a really significant vision maker in Indian country on environmental management. And it was a very pragmatic blend of traditional wisdom that's frankly very hard to explain or understand for anyone who's not tribal 
um, and um, and feet on the ground, hardcore science. Uh, he blended the two uh, with this deeply pragmatic approach. And he was always looking over the horizon and always coming back uh, very much as I learned to do over the years working with him. Um, and coming back and saying, okay, folks, here's the next challenge or the next major opportunity. We're going to have to take this on. Um, and he became known for that, revered throughout, really, in the country nationwide. Uh, it was not all indigenous knowledge. It was not all science. It was both. Uh, in fact, I mean, there, there's a whole field of protecting indigenous knowledge that uh, grew up out of the work he and others uh, were doing, a, a lot of it around climate. Uh, he was a very early leader in, in steering everyone in the natural resources management community toward dealing with climate. And we came to view it in part due to his work as the central challenge. Uh, if we don't meet that one, the others almost don't matter because it, it, this will unravel the ecosystems that we depend on. And uh, you know, there ain't going to be food on the plate, certainly not from the ocean. And Cherry got all that early um, and he got it through this vast 360 vision that he had and it allowed him to get out in front and bring word back in ways that you know, usually people didn't understand right away, not even in tribes. And uh, over time, everybody got on board and everybody kind of owned these ideas that he had seeded into us all. Um, so, I mean, it, we owe a ton to Terry. You know, it's this team really was uh, brought together by him uh, with the program. Uh, he co-launched it, uh, this whole concept of building tribal leadership. And the notion really, as he would have put it, is tribes have been on this landscape for, you know, tens of thousands of years. Uh, they know something about climate change. Mm -hmm. They've lived through it. Uh, and uh, their typical message that you get from a tribal elder, and Terry in this sense was typical, was let the white people run away when the climate changes. We'll stay here and we'll show them how it's done. Mm -hmm. uh, and the uh, that's not always true, but that's the norm. Uh, it's it, it, this is this is a deep confidence in what they know, and it's a tremendous north star we think uh, for guiding um, with a real eye on the long view what it takes to get this right for keeps the work that's going on in carbon removal. Uh, we see carbon removal as this incredibly powerful new toolkit that's emerging. It's going to become one of the most central pieces of human response to climate change. Uh, it's probably going to be responsible for the largest wedge of climate emissions, re you know, removal and reduction um, over time uh, in centuries to come. And even in this century, um, it's um, it's a very big piece of the of the pie. And it's going to have to develop very, very fast. If you look at the IPCC data and that very, very fast development is going to create a very large industry, potentially one of the largest in the world. When Terry and I looked at that starting in 2018 from IPCC's sort of big, you know, um, watershed report, the SR15 report that said we got to hit 1.5 degrees. And by the way, here's how um, 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 we had to limit warming to that. There's no way to do it without massive amounts of carbon removal. Those massive amounts have been plotted and projected into economic terms. You're looking at a multi-trillion dollar industry by 2050 removing tens of billions of tons of carbon from the air, at least 10 billion annually uh, by 
by that time it, to meet the projections they said we got to meet to keep the climate so it still works, um, so we can still live here. Uh, and that, if, you're, if you view that from an indigenous land as, lens, as Terry did, uh, you realize this, these are tools we got to learn how to, we got to master. You also realize if tribes don't lead, they will get rolled. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it, it, to, to sit on the sidelines is a, is a very poor option for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's what led to this program. Well, and no intention uh, on the on the part of the tribal community in the Pacific Northwest and around I get, I think around the world to to take on the serious challenge of climate change and in particular ocean acidification uh, that directly impacts uh, important fisheries uh, ev- everywhere. Um, tell us a little bit more about the uh, the initiative building tribal leadership in carbon removal. Um, Terry, obviously, an inspiration, a leader, uh, a, and uh, uh, and I believe, if if I'm not mistaken, I think Terry passed away this year. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the transition from Terry's vision and leadership, and how the tribal leadership? Uh, program for carbon removal uh, is likely to move forward from here. Well, Terry co-convened our first meeting with tribes in Olympia in um, June or July, I forget which it was. Um, and um, and shortly after that, he died. Um, he was getting on in years and had some chronic illnesses. Uh, brought to the table early um, because we'd working with Terry, gotten to know them, were um, some leaders around uh, the Northwest and elsewhere um, uh, in Indian country. Uh, Fawn Sharp, vice chair of the Quinault Indian Nation out on the coast, uh, is one of our key advisors. She's also right now the president of the National Congress of American Indians. Um, the um, um, a, a fellow named uh, Bobby Whitener, uh, who's a Squaxin Island uh, elder and former executive director of the tribe, uh, very revered and well-known in Indian country for having um, guided uh, and helped design uh, the creation of some important institutions and laws in, in, that are very important to tribes, uh, both in environmental stewardship and in economic development. Um, uh, Bobby uh, climbed on board and got even more involved when Terry died because Terry asked him to. Uh, and um, he's, he's a key player in this. Uh, we have uh, been convening uh, tribal, uh, mostly technical staff lately, um, to, uh, to use what are really a, a variant of scenario planning methods called transformative scenario planning. Uh, that it looks at the options available and the, the, the kinds of futures that are possible uh, and uh, allows them to construct those building blocks into a future they're choosing. And they can recommend that to leaders and and then tribal elected leaders can decide what they want to do. It's their call. Um, But our work is to make sure that they've got a a, really solid uh, foundation to make those decisions. And they understand the opportunities and the risks, and there are both. Uh, this um, This is not a panacea. Uh, it's a piece of the toolkit that's needed to deal with climate, and it's going to be, it looks like, very large 
and it will have impacts as well as benefits. And it, 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 it's very interesting for them. And this is a key thing that, that, you know, Terry was all about taking the 360 view on things. And he was an inspiration to everyone involved here from, you know, Fawn Sharp to Bobby and, and to, to me and, you know, to Francesca who worked with Terry at Tule Lip Tribe um, and uh, quite a few others. Uh, uh, but that uh, legacy of weaving everything together is a very indigenous approach. And, and it, it, it means, for example, looking at what are the co-benefits that you can obtain um, and how do you maximize those uh, so that it's not just a one-off carbon solution one and done and it's all you're doing. Uh, if, it turns out if you're dealing with carbon pollution, uh, you're doing something that goes a long way towards circularizing the economy, which means addressing sort of the central uh, design failure of modern capitalism, which has been that we, we're, we're too linear. Uh, we move things in, we use them up, we throw them out. Uh, it, that linear economy has been a marvelous engine of prosperity and also a, a, an unsustainable mess. Um, and it, it's, so, this is something tribes understand very well because they, they, their tradition is not linear, it's circular. Um, and as we think, as they get involved in this space, that they are going to find really interesting ways of weaving, this is what's already starting to happen, uh, of weaving habitat protection, cultural resource protection, the, the fundamental needs of, of any community, including any indigenous community. I mean, you gotta have, you gotta take out the garbage. <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta have municipal services. You gotta have working transportation systems. You gotta have some power. All the things that you gotta have to have a functioning community uh, intersect here. And we're excited to see the ways that they um, uh, take advantage of what happens when you harness the largest waste stream in human history and turn it from waste into something else, maybe something quite useful for multiple things. Totally. And I just, I, I think it's, it, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I, I've got to say, I really appreciate you going over uh, some of the foundations of how uh, tribes work together. Um, it's something that I, I have to say, I'm not, I don't have a lot of exposure with you, Brad and Peter, having some Pacific Northwest experience. I think might understand this better than a lot of our listeners who haven't been out there. Brad, can you explain how tribes do? I, I know that there's a an intertribal work group that was created. Could you explain what the purpose of that group was and and how it worked? Sure, and it's still going. Um, and I mean, it's it is um, largely tribal technical staff who get involved in sort of vetting what's plausible. Um, and what actually intersects with the, and, and serves the interests of their tribes. Uh, and tribes have built over the last roughly 40 years, a little longer since the Bolt decision in 1974, that kind of built the foundation of um, the, the sort of modern sovereignty uh, world that we're in among tribes in the Northwest and in, in some respects internationally. Um, that... Um, They've built a really considerable um, capacity in governance, in resource management. Uh, they have real governments now. These are not um, 
of bedraggled and sad little communities. They, they, they certainly have their historical traumas and ongoing problems. It's not, they're not free of trouble by any means, but they've built incredibly capable governments. Um, and their, um, their technical staff and natural resources are renowned. Um, they're uh, among the most innovative and expert um, to be found anywhere. And that's it, it, notably true in the Northwest, but not exclusively. You have very, very strong natural resource management among tribes, really all over, uh, because it's so fundamental to uh, tr to indigenous identity, um, and you know across international boundaries, uh, and so that we're convening those folks, and um, uh, in addition to that, we're doing leadership level convenings more infrequently that are informed by these expert staff who've had a chance to digest information we bring them. We bring in experts, folks like Will Burns from now Northwestern University, one of the leading legal scholars uh, in environmental law and policy broadly and specifically on carbon removal, uh, really an expert uh, worldwide. Uh, and uh, Will was co-founder of the Institute for Carbon Removal Law and Policy at American University, still is involved there, um, and has uh, been a, a very generous and able partner. He's one of uh, you know, a suite of them, folks at NOAA uh, from other institutions who've really been on the research cutting edge. And we bring them in to share notes on and be resource people as tribes chew into these issues. So, you know, you want to do, for example, you want to do nature-based solutions. Um, tribes are generally very enthusiastic about that approach. Uh, using natural systems to hoover up carbon instead of industrial systems. Um, and uh, that's, uh, it, it's a big interest. It's also a very difficult piece to get through the hoops in the carbon removal world the way it exists now, uh, because you've got to verify and quantify uh, the amount of carbon you've uh, removed from the atmosphere. And you've got to uh, establish that you can durably store it. And uh, natural systems are full of flow, flux, not, not long-term storage in general. Particularly at the surface of the earth and in the surface waters of the ocean, things are moving constantly. Uh, it's, a, it's a highly labile environment. And to get things to, put, to stay put when you put them there, uh, it takes some doing. And there are ways of doing it, uh, but it's, it's quite challenging. And not all natural approaches are going to get in the door right away uh, for this. It, 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 a, distinguishing, a distinguishing feature of the carbon removal world from, say, carbon offsets, which are more familiar to folks, it's not just a, a single carbon market out there. In, in carbon removal, you're looking to draw down vast quantities of carbon from the atmosphere and put it away for keeps uh, for geologic time. The minimum that investors are setting is around, and that the government is setting, is a thousand years and more. And the government's actually, in, in, in their standards, it's going toward basically geologic permanence. Uh, uh, and you, you don't get geologic permanence from a forest. You get you know, some period of time when the carbon is stored. Uh, you don't get geologic permanence from most soil carbon storage. Uh, you get, uh, you know, for a while, uh, maybe decades or maybe if you're lucky, centuries uh, in these systems. Uh, if you do kelp, uh, if you, there's a, a lot of 
thinking that somehow you can sink it in the ocean and the ocean will, will sequester it. it. It may not sequester it just that easily. Uh, there probably are ways to do it. But it, it, these are going to be tricky hurdles to jump. So our last session, uh, a couple of weeks back, was really focused on helping people understand these monitoring and verification challenges and how did this start beginning to design and conceive of projects that can move through those hurdles and, you know, position tribes, uh, as some already are, frankly, um, to be able really to meet the highest standards um, you, you, the last thing you want is to have a situation where tribes are kind of, you know, um, operating uh, in, in, in a poorly verified uh, context. And, uh, you know, it, it, that they're, they're after uh, real leadership here and they're going to obtain it. Uh, they're, they're not going to play an also ran game. Well, it sounds like they have an opportunity to to be a leading uh, organization and a leading voice uh, on appropriate climate response. A couple observations, Brad. I mean, first of all, uh, you you told us why uh, the tribes have a special role uh, that's legally grounded in the Bolt decision, the Supreme Court decision that that gave the tribes management authority over. Uh, uh, parts of the salmon uh, runs in the Pacific Northwest. They they have the expertise. They have the, uh, a perspective that is unique and different to offer. Um, there are a lot of things that are uh, important in the fisheries world. Um, can you talk a little bit about why the tribes and the work that you've done is gravitated toward the climate problem and carbon pollution? Um, give us a sense of why in all of the other issues that are of significant concern in the fisheries management universe, uh, climate is the issue of, uh, of your focus and the focus of the, uh, the intertribal work group. You bet. Yeah. I, I, I'm happy to, to address that for tribes and for working waterfront communities and people in, involved in fisheries all over. This is increasingly a vivid and real uh, challenge. It's not. Uh, it, it's not little. It's the biggest existential threat to the future of fisheries and the ability of the ocean to make dinner um, that, that we've ever seen. Um, if you uh, if you go back to you know the uh, the late '90s, early 2000s, it was beginning to dawn on us. At the time, I was running a fishing magazine. It was beginning to dawn on us that this was the big existential um, uh, change. Everything challenge. Uh, you alter the world's carbon flux and fill the atmosphere with other greenhouse gases that are even more powerful. And you wind up uh, changing not only thermal characteristics, you change uh, physical, chemical, uh, you change the foundations of the food web, you alter the way the ocean stratifies and cause large areas of hypoxia. Um, you drive, in fact, expanding areas uh, all over. Uh, worldwide. Uh, it, it interacts with other forms of pollution and aggravates them. Um, it um, takes places that make dinner today and puts them at risk, at risk of making nothing tomorrow. Um, and the, I mean, the dominant thesis to explain what just happened to the Bering Sea's two big crab fisheries, king crab and opelio crab, is climate impacts. 
it's it's not fully understand mechanistically yet, not fully understood mechanistically yet, but that's where we're getting to. Um, and it's, it's very likely that uh, uh, these two of the most valuable fisheries in the country just went down uh, and they may or may not be able to come back up again, probably not to what they were um, if they do. Um, and most likely because of the decimation of ice uh, in the Bering Sea. Uh, so you, you have these profound physical changes uh, that then alter uh, the, what amount to the, the thermal habitats that these animals live in at different life cycle, different life stages. They shelter in that very cold water, especially when they're young. Uh, they shelter from predation uh, and from, the, <laughs> including from their own adults. <laughs> they, they shelter and find food there as well. Uh, the the best of the um, uh, zooplankton that they eat as the very young crabs are in that very cold water. Uh, that's where they get the uh, the energy density in their diet that they need to survive winter. Uh, this is true with fish too. Uh, quite a number of them. Uh, Brad, just let me interject for the record and the, the, the listeners out there who've not uh, followed this issue closely. You're talking about the almost total collapse of the Alaska snow crab fishery uh, reductions in, in, in population in the Bering Sea uh, at, at 90% unprecedented. Uh, and the Dungeness crab fishery on the West Coast also substantially down um, I know you. Yeah, I know that. that's a that's a story that's perhaps um, more complex. But both king crab and and snow crab in the Bering Sea got hammered and uh, shut down. Uh, I mean, they, they, they're they're not opening this winter. This winter, um, and so you you you've got. I mean, that's it's one contemporary example. There've been many, and it's it's one of the best documented because uh, people are actually looking at it now. The the long history of of fisheries vanishing. Uh, because of climate change, goes back decades. And uh, in, in rare cases, it's actually documented. In general, nobody knew to be looking at the right data to understand it. Well, and, and Brad, that's what I want to ask you about, because, you know, the interesting thing about uh, America's uh, fisheries is that there's a long history of what is broadly considered to be fairly successful management. Um, you know, our, our fish stocks have been, I'm going to use the word sustainably managed, um, for a long time. There have been, you know, if, if, if a population were to, these are scientifically studied, uh, and, and scientific based decisions oftentimes about opening and closing. And I know that there's difficult dynamics, Brad, and that's what I want to ask you about talking about, I mean, quite simply, when I think of fisheries management on the American shoreline, climate change to my knowledge, was not a part of the lexicon, uh, you know, up, maybe up until very recently. And I'm wondering uh, where where your this tribal organization kind of fits into the 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 breaking of the thought wave. I mean, our our fishery our our fishery managers is is cli- I mean, climate change surely must be front of mind. It is, and it has been for a long time. I think tribes got there earlier than others. Um, it's not that others weren't starting to think about it, but uh, there's an enormous reluctance. You know, the fishing industry nation, nationwide is largely conservative in its political views and, and reluctant to embrace a kind of climate-centric vision of change. Uh, and that's not, it's not a nil prospect. There are people who are really on it, but um, it, 
that's the dominant flavor. Um, and if you look at uh, tribes, uh, at the same time that we were going around in the late 2000s talking to you know, fishing communities and tribes and seafood companies and everybody about climate change, we were also talking to tribes. And tribes got it right away. I remember in, I think it was 2009, 2010, I ran into Billy Frank Jr., who was the head of the Northwest Indian Fisheries Commission, very distinguished Indian leader, one of the people who won the Bolt decision, and uh, then built this entity called the Northwest Indian Fisheries Commission that is the, the, um, uh, the main engine of capacity building for tribes in the Northwest for um, um, uh, fishery management and uh, many other forms of resource management and stewardship, looking after habitat restoration projects, big ecosystem restoration projects, lots of things. They've really been a, a key engine of uh, funding and expertise and uh, um, uh, training and um, uh, support uh, for tribes. Uh, and they've been emulated by uh, similar bodies nationwide uh, in, in intertribal groups that do the same thing. Um, Bobby Whitener, who's helping us with this project, is one of the people who designed it in its current form. Uh, Billy Frank ran it. He was one of the first people who opened the doors. He actually introduced me to to Terry Williams uh, when I was a kid reporter. Um, and uh, uh, Billy, in 2009, 2010, I'm getting on a plane to go talk to people in, in DC about ocean acidification and why we need to start a research program to start understanding what's coming at us. And um, we were successful in that, as it turns out. But it, it, on that same plane, Billy was getting on. It, and he turns to me as we're boarding, and he says, what are you doing? I had to tell him what I'm working on. Um, and he says, give me something to read. And I, I give him a few articles to read. And he takes them back to his seat, comes back half an hour later. He's digested it all. He says, we got to take this on. <laughs> um, you know, then he convenes the commission and their technical staff and the staff of tribes around the region, and he and, and sits them down and has me and I brought in an oceanographer from NOAA, and we and we just kind of gave them chapter and verse, and they got real serious about it. Uh, when uh, when we were we proposed uh, jointly with Terry Williams and the, and Taylor Shellfish, one of the big shellfish growing companies we proposed creating a blue ribbon panel on ocean acidification at, in Washington State with the idea that states weren't in the game yet and they needed to learn how. So the commission kind of gave them a roadmap. And to build that commission, the folks in the governor's office were like, let's stack this with politicians. And I looked at their list and I said, you know, that's not going to cut it because the politicians don't know how to do this. You got to have tribes, not just one. You got to have at least two. Um, uh, and you got to have scientists. Uh, you got to have mostly scientists uh, because that's who knows the most about the problem to be able to define it precisely enough that you can do something, right? You have to know it in detail to know where the levers are. And um, that uh, and, and that knowledge also, some of that's in the tribes. And so it, it went, it got stood up and the two tribes were in the end served on it. One was Macaw, uh, known as the Ocean Tribe out on the northwesternmost tip of the lower 48. And the other was Tulalip with Terry Williams. And uh, they, they bit hard on it. And I would say that many of the key recommendations of that commission were, were then emulated by others around the country. States dove into it. I don't know where the numbers are now, but at that time we calculated that those, uh, the, the, the birth of these state initiatives to tackle acidification more than doubled the money for 
research to understand what we were up against, which is the foundation you got to have. Um, and tribes have been players in that space, uh, even doing uh, some of the extremely difficult measurements you got to do to see this happen in the water chemistry. Um, it's it's not easy science, um, and you know there's a few tribes doing it, um, and there's some doing really interesting work on corollary changes. At Quinault, they're doing outstanding work on on the interaction of uh, ocean hypoxia. That's uh, often climate related, not entirely, but but that's an aggravating factor. Um, and what that's doing to Dungeness and other fisheries, uh, uh, and it's uh, you have tribes that have everything at stake in their identity. Um, you know, to the extent that my family identified as a fishing family, that frankly pales compared to what goes on in indigenous country. The depth of identity of who and what I am that depends on a healthy environment. Uh, it's understood and felt. I'm going to say that it, it, the same thing is true for everyone else, but the rest of us don't know it. They know it. And because they know it, they, they're, they're awake to it in a way that makes them quicker on the draw uh, to, get, to, to get what's going on and dive in. I love it. I love it. And we need that. No question about it. And you were kind of touching on some of this stuff, uh, Brad, but, and, and, you know, Peter, uh, uh, currently you're working at Vesta, uh, which is a carbon removal company. Uh, the game, it seems like the game now is a bit on. Would you mind talking about the current state of carbon removal? Well, investment in the field has, uh, grown exponentially in the last three years. Uh, in, in, and the number of people working in it is growing exponentially. If you, if you look at where we were in 2019, there was, you could measure it in the millions of dollars of investments. Uh, it's now in the billions. It's probably, you know, four or five billion this year, um, counting the, the feds with the three laws that have just passed. Big climate laws include significant money for carbon removal. Um, that's the, the uh, Infrastructure Act, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, and uh, the CHIPS Act. Uh, and the, uh, uh, and on top of the feds, the private sector is putting money in. Uh, their projections, I just read one this morning from The Economist uh, saying they think that by 2025, there'll be a trillion or 1.5 trillion of investment globally in carbon removal going on. Um, there are uh, there, some, some indigenous communities are right in it. Uh, an example of that is up in the upper Nicola uh, Indian band in BC, uh, in, the, in the Okanagan. It's a sort of upper Fraser River watershed. Uh, they are, you know, three and a half, four hours from Vancouver, east and north. Um, uh, a tiny little community with about 30,000 acres of land and an enormous hydropower substation on their land that comes down and feeds the lower mainland uh, from three dams uh, in the BC hydro system. And um, they made a deal with a company called Carbon Engineering that does direct air capture uh, with big machines that fan uh, fan. CO2 out of the air and extract it. And then um, they're going to build, as an example of the investment scale, they're going to build a $1.3 billion plant at Upper Nicola. Uh, Chief Harvey uh, told us about it. Um, it's, um, uh, it is their land and their 
power supply, renewable power supply, critically, because it has to be low carbon power, um, that made this deal attractive to the company and made their site actually make sense. Um, um, they, they were skeptical themselves of it, but that the explanation that they had what it took to do it moved them. And they had themselves, uh, this didn't come out of the blue, they had, they had experienced climate holocaust practically. You know, you, you will have seen the headlines about communities around them. Merritt, BC, a few miles away, had horrible floods, fires, a heat dome. The interior of BC had lots and lots of people die from that heat dome event a couple of years ago, hundreds. Um, and they, uh, um, they felt like they were living through a kind of apocalypse of climate impacts, and it just wasn't going to be enough to change the light bulbs anymore. They had to go further and they were started looking around and this company called carbon engineering is who showed up and gave them a very significant play uh, they're they're um they're going to hoover it out of the air and they're going to make clean fuel decarbonized fuel they're going to make um uh, low carbon renewable hydrogen out there and combine the hydrogen and the carbon and make their own renewable synthetic fuel uh, and I, I don't know their marketing plan for that uh, but that's the plan. Um, if they sell it, this is interesting. If they sell it into BC, Washington, Oregon, and California, all four of those states have low carbon fuel policies that are effectively a ratchet on market share uh, that push the fuel companies to deliver more clean fuel as a percentage of their total market. And it's, um, it gives them a way to play in that space. It could be quite lucrative. Uh, and you know, it, it, they also have the option of doing what many other companies are, are going to do, and that's stick it in a hole in the ground using, you know, EPA classified well with the right monitoring. And, you know, it sequesters underground in geologic terms. You get paid under that, under EPA, under Rule 45Q for the tax code. 45Q, one of my favorite provisions in the IRS code uh, for secure geologic storage. I, what I'm encouraged by uh, the story that you're that you're sharing with our listeners today, Brad, uh, is we've moved past, as Tyler said, we're in, we're in a post uh, denial, climate denial world now uh, for all rational humans. Um, we are moving past the notion of the either or choice between do we focus on emission reduction or do we focus on carbon removal? The answer isn't one or the other. It must be both. And I think your analysis of, of the land management practices approach, which we all are in support of, of wetlands, mangroves, uh, forest land conservation, improved ag practices. Uh, but as you mentioned, those kinds of initiatives uh, are not permanent dis, uh, removal of carbon. Uh, it's part of the flux in the carbon system. So we're starting to think about things like air capture. We're starting to think about enhanced ocean alkalinity, uh, which is a focus, of course, of the company that I work, Vesta. Uh, but I think that the investments that are coming online and the stake uh, that the tribes have in the outcome really do position them uh, to be in a leading role, I hope, uh, in advancing carbon removal technology. It's pretty damn exciting. Um, where do you see this going? Um, where do you think we're headed over the next 10 years? Um, are you optimistic about our capacity to develop effective carbon removal technologies and to implement those? 
I, I am, uh, with the caveat that I think an awful lot of what we're doing at this point is unproven. Uh, we, we, we don't know what the impacts are for a lot of it, and there will be some. And we don't know um, what the efficacy is for a lot of it. Uh, and, the, you know, the, the, there's, there's good theoretical basis to, to, to believe there will be efficacy and that some methods are starting to show it. Um, and it's, it, that's, I think that's encouraging. I think another encouraging thing about this is this uh, rising tide of investments, you know, multiple orders of magnitude increase in the last three years, you know, from millions to uh, billions. And uh, uh, that's uh, projected to increase by more orders of magnitude in the next few years. Um, when people have their back against the wall, like, for example, you know, um, Ukraine does right now, uh, they can get amazingly resourceful. Uh, and, you know, we've seen this over and over. And uh, the world civilization we have today, our back is against the wall. Uh, and we now no longer can just do emission reduction. We frankly didn't do well enough at that. We now need to also do cleanup. Um, you know, Mother Nature is saying, clean up your room. And there is not an option to say no. Uh, there is an option to say yes, and I'll figure out how. There's things I don't know, I'm gonna have to figure them out. We're all in that figure it out mode. Um, and that's in some ways where people show some of their best features, right? There is this brilliance that people are capable of, it's showing in this community. I'm gonna say that there's a dark side to that. And it's one of the reasons that Terry felt so strongly that tribes need to step in their leadership. Terry and I were getting phone calls and emails from people in the carbon removal community, researchers, developers, um, uh, government folks who want this to happen, um, saying, tell us how to get social license. You work with tribes uh, and, and you know, in coastal communities, how do we get social license to do this? That's our big challenge. And Terry's answer to that was, how about you scrap those two words and start over? You don't have the answer and all you need is a license. You have a great idea. Now come to tribes and help build it with us. Design something that works and we'll, we'll build it with you and we'll test it and we'll give you a chance to make, to refine it and, and throw out the things that don't work and the things that have un, unacceptable consequences and narrow in on the things that really can deliver. I love it. Um, and that became the axiom of our work. It's a, it's a great, it's a great thing to keep in mind. Uh, uh, there's, there's a thing called greenwashing out there. There's a way to sort of like, Hey, if we can associate in a particular way, it's good for our PR. Uh, the tribes are demanding a much, much different role, uh, keeping their hands on the wheel as it were, and, uh, driving the process and the development of CDR uh, technologies, carbon, uh, removal, Technology. I'm encouraged by that. I think they have, they do have, uh, to have an organization that is different than the other institutional actors, uh, say as good as they can be at NOAA or in the federal government or Department of Energy and all the other research branches of, of the federal government that that get involved. Um, having this perspective uh, seems essential, uh, Brad, and gives me uh, hope that a diversity of viewpoints. Uh, is going to benefit everyone as we get into this learning experiment R and D phase and get serious. 
uh, I think they can really, the tribal perspective can really help uh, help broaden the analysis and the quality of the work. It, is that your sense in working with the group so far that they absolutely tend to be intend to be operational in their thinking and and really engaged in in what is undertaken? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, particularly at the leadership level, tribal leaders see this correctly, I think, as an economic opportunity and also as an, a sustainability, a, a stewardship opportunity and a, a chance to blend the two. Um, you know, it's it's far too often been the case that they're offered economic opportunities that require them to participate in the rape of the land or the water, right? And some have had to do it um, and, because they had no economic alternative. Um, and even those tribes, from what we're seeing, are are nationwide are looking at these options to get on the right side of history in a sense here um and you know it, the tribes that are in fossil fuels they're interested in this too um and the, the the others who are you know frankly much more vested in um and identified with conservation preservation restoration um well, I, I can't say that they're more vested, but that's that's kind of where they start from. They're all vested in that. It's who they are. Um, but if you if you look at this, it, they're, they're going to do a really rigorous piece of work pushing to, to, to see how far can you get nature-based solutions using photosynthesis, you probably using mineralization like you guys are doing at Vesta. Um, uh, using the, the different mechanisms that are in, in, that nature uses uh, to drive solutions here. Uh, I think they're going to be a key part of that. And I mean, it's interesting too, because you can look at tribes like Upper Nicola, which uh, they're, uh, it's so pragmatic. It's like the opportunities they have meant going to the engineered end of the spectrum. They did it. Um, you know, it, I'm sure it was not an easy decision. Um, and Chief Harvey talks about that. But they did it. They did. And Brad, uh, before we wrap up, I'd, I'd love for you to uh, leave our audience with some uh, final thoughts and also uh, let us know where we can follow along uh, with the Building Tribal Leadership in Carbon Removal Project. Oh, thank you. Sure. Well, you can follow along uh, by checking in on our, our, our project website. It's called buildingtriballeadership.org. Uh, and uh, you know, our aspiration here is that uh, tribes really, we're here to be a kind of, um, really, we're not driving this. We are functioning as a, um, a facilitator for tribes to incubate their own initiative. This will be, you know, uh, in, in future, it'll be, you won't be having interviews with me about this. You'll be having interviews with tribal leaders and tribal staff. Um, and they'll have their own entity or entities driving this, tribes themselves and a, you know maybe some kind of collaboration between them. Uh, and our work will become, um, you know, we, we'll evolve in a direction more of um, not spark plugging, not incubating, but serving and, and uh, helping to, do the the research and you know how do you how do you make sure this is grounded in the in the solid science and all of that um but it's it it's their lead that we support and follow um and it's it's because we believe their leadership is so central 
to the solutions here to work. I mean, in, in essence, we're looking at a field that's going to grow up very fast. Let's make sure it grows up right. Who's going to be good at that? Tribes. Long-term thinking, multi-generations, uh, a community of people that is uh, deeply connected to the natural world and the natural systems. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Building tribal leadership and carbon removal. Tell us the uh, web address one more time, Brad. Oh, yeah, it, you, it's buildingtriballeadership.org. That is great. What a pleasure, Brad, to uh, learn about this initiative, the work by the National Fisheries Conservation Center and Global Ocean Health to partner uh, with the uh, tribal community in the Pacific Northwest uh, and really get uh, their hands involved in the most complex issue I think the human community, we can say, has ever faced. Uh, This is going to be a very, very long walk uh, to a path of success. And uh, having these communities and these voices uh, in the forefront uh, is great for everybody. And uh, we really, really thank you for uh, bringing this message forward. And uh, please, please let us have a chance in the future, Brad, to sit down with some of these tribal leaders as they get further into it. We'd love to have them on the show. Uh, open door for you and your and your partners. Uh, we'd love to hear great. more about it. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And it won't be just Northwest tribes. Uh, this is this is um, uh, it's national. We started in the Northwest because it's a, it's a great sort of vanguard place to, to build momentum in Indian country, and it's uh, it it's it's not going to end only uh, regional. It's 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 already not. Uh, there are folks in, participating from the Midwest and folks from the Southwest and the East Coast really keen to get involved and more more coming. Fantastic news, ladies and gentlemen. It is Brad Warren, a great friend of. The American Shoreline Podcast and Coastal News Today, uh, one of the bright lights and leading thinkers on the American Shoreline. Uh, Brad is president and executive director of the National Fisheries Conservation Center, leader of Global Ocean Health as well. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Brad Warren, thank you for your time today, Brad, and we uh, look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you, Peter and Tyler. Always a pleasure.